You're listening to the Founder Coach Podcast, a show that investigates what it really means to be the CEO of a fast-growing tech company. My name's Dave Bailey, and I coach founders that raise capital from the world's top venture funds to fuel their business. And I'm sitting down with CEOs to talk about their experiences, the challenges they face, and the lessons they've learned, or are learning right now. Hello, everybody. Now, in today's episode, we're joined by a powerhouse CEO who just raised $12 million from Notion Capital to grow his SaaS venture, ASIN. Paul Ford, welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Before we jump into ASIN in the round, we'd been talking previously about your time as an army officer in the Royal Engineers. I'm curious to start there because you obviously did a lot of training there. And I wonder how that's helped your ability to lead tech companies and if there were any disadvantages as well. You know, the military, particularly as as an officer, is all about leadership. As a young 20-something-year-old, you're thrust into running a, a troop, in my case, of 30 or 40 people. And I think that kind of training, that kind of discipline of leadership, that's the default setting that I have. And I think that's very useful when it comes to a startup where you need to lead from the front, but you also need to be resilient. The military is very good at at both selecting and training for resilience. I think that's a lot of the young officer experience. Things don't always go right. And so it's kind of how do you react when things don't go right? Do you freeze or do you step up and start to work the problem and, and solve that? So I find actually I use much more of my military training and experience in the startup mode than my corporate experience in terms of skills and behaviors that you need to exhibit. Yeah, you you mentioned resilience. What were the exercises and training that you did in the army that you think really helped you stay resilient in the face of adversity? Firstly, they select for it. You know, the whole selection process is very intense over many, many days. And so you do find that the peer group that you end up at Sandhurst with is a naturally resilient bunch. But in terms of the training, it's very much about breaking you down and rebuilding you back up. And that's by being very busy, you know, lots of sleep deprivation where you find out about yourself and you find out about your peers, because at that point you're completely stripped down. You can't hide anything when you haven't slept for three, four days. And so that gives you that insight into how do I behave when things start to go wrong and that allows you to ensure that you do the right things in those moments and I think also you just go through a lot of things that go wrong and so you realize that failure is a natural process it happens to everyone it happens all the time and it's how you react to that how you learn from that and you get to be able to kind of ride that through and it's not about what just went wrong it's about what I can do about that going forward. So I can totally see that people who are less resilient, they're going to select themselves out. You also mentioned once you get into the training, there's a certain level of sleep deprivation or certain level of stress that you you get put through. How does that play out in startups? The thing with a startup is you're operating with imperfect information. You've got an aim, you've got an ambition. That's very much like a military mission in a way. The military doesn't tell you precisely how to do everything. They give you a... This is broadly how you should do it, and it's for you to interpret. And then along the way, things go wrong. So in a startup, things go wrong all the time, whether that's to the business itself, the people, the product. You have to kind of find feedback loops because 
if you let all of those failures and those learning moments build up on you, it, it can be easy for that to overwhelm you. And actually, the military experience is one where you absorb that and you ride through it. And you know that it's your job as the leader to be the face of that, to take that forward. And it doesn't mean that you don't show vulnerability to the team, but you are the one that keeps the team going, keeps them on track. Mm. Yeah, because when I think military, I think command and control, do as you're told. Is that is that fair? No, so that's a common misconception. And I think it's because the military has a explicit rank structure. People do think someone tells someone who tells someone who tells someone. And actually, it isn't like that at all. I mean, clearly there is a rank structure. But in an operational situation, wars and, and so on are, are chaos. And so actually, the concept of empowerment is entirely built into the model. And it's just called mission command. So you tell people what you want to achieve, not how to do it, because they could be cut off, no communications, can't talk to anyone. And they have to use their initiative. And so this idea of the command and control perspective, I think, you know, is a little bit of a myth, certainly not in the British Army. Interesting. And you transitioned from the army into the world of finance. Before your current venture, you were chief operating officer at Barclays Wealth. How did that experience lead to your current venture? My finance career in big organizations was one where I started building settlement systems in banks and then just started doing bigger and more sophisticated projects, really as a kind of generalist. For me, it was kind of leadership and project management, getting things done inside organizations. And then I did a big reorganization, actually, when I worked at Credit Suisse, and then ended up as the COO to the then CEO. Then I moved on to the Barclays subsequently. It was a great experience, but I wanted to be able to prove to myself that I could go out on my own and build a business without all of that support structure, without that brand behind you. I'd like to start with understanding a bit more about ASIN's customer and what it is you do for them. Yeah. Unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so we work with the largest investment banks in the world, Credit Suisse, SOCGEN, Standard Chartered, pretty much all of the tier one investment banks. And what we do for them is we help them better manage their operational risk. They take three sets of risks principally. One is credit risk. That is, they lend money to counterparties, effectively the oldest type of risk. They take market risk, which is essentially trading risk. And then pretty much everything else is operational risk. And if you look at the capital that regulators insist the bank hold, it's in those three buckets. So you'll see credit risk is broadly the largest capital bucket. Operational risk now actually is the second highest capital element and market risk is the third. So we've got these three types of risks. And as part of regulation, you need to hold a bucket of capital in case something goes wrong? Correct. So before the last financial crisis in 2008, that capital was primarily held against market risk and credit risk. And post the last financial crisis, regulators then insisted the banks held capital against those operational risks. And operational risks are all the things, internal fraud, external fraud, system failures, process failures. Let's take JP Morgan, for example. Ten years ago, they held zero operational risk capital. Today, they're holding 40 billion of operational risk capital. So it's a big number. And this is a discipline that has grown significantly since 2008, but one which is not as sophisticated as market and credit risk. And really what we're tackling is 
how do you do it better? How do you turn operational risk into the same discipline that market and credit risk are? How do financial institutions deal with this without ASIN? Is it just a spreadsheet where they have a standard percentage of working capital that has to be put aside? Or how does that work? So they face thousands and thousands of risks. Those risks will be catalogued. And then each risk should have at least one mitigating control. And typically, we'll see those controls in spreadsheets, some in platforms, but it's very fragmented. So you might see within an organization, different departments using different methods. It's very difficult for them to interrogate that information. We see lots of duplication. Mm. And also, because there's no connectivity between firms, then you don't have a reference point to work out whether you're missing something or not. It's a human judgment piece. So there's actually very little that an organization can do today to proactively impact that capital number, which when you contrast it with market or credit risk, you know, those are ones that you can dial it up or dial it down, depending on how much risk you take. And I'm guessing now ASIN is coming in with a standardized way of doing it for different parts of the business. Yeah, that's broadly correct. So the regulators don't mandate what systems you use, and they do mandate that certain things must be done. But they also expect that you ought to be running your business in a safe and controlled way. So there's then a set of rules inside a bank, policies and procedures And what we do is we allow for differences. We don't ask people to change everything we do, but using our technology and the fact that it's a centralized platform, we can say, yeah, you actually do have everything where you've got gaps or where you've got duplications. So you're charging for this software as a subscription service. Yeah. So I'm guessing you charge per team, per area. Yeah, today, the way we've broken it down is by business unit with inside an investment bank. So there'll be an FX trading desk, an electronic trading business, cash equities, derivatives, commodities. So a full service investment bank would have about 20 of those businesses. And what we realized early on is that it would take a long time to do a full enterprise sale and say that we can do this for the whole of your business. We said, why don't you try it for one business? And so we've seen a lot of initial traction in electronic trading, FX, because those are businesses that had a lot of regulatory scrutiny over the last few years. So we started with that, and then we start to expand out across the enterprise, and we charge that as a subscription unit per business. Ah, so we, we hear a lot about land and expand in SaaS companies, particularly meaningful. I guess that does come from the military to land and expand. Yeah. Um, but you land in the area of greatest need and then use that as a platform to grow. Now, before ASIN, you were operating a consulting business. Was this essentially solving the same problem, but with humans? Yes, exactly. In 2010, when I set the business up, it was really to work with people running trading desks as a response to the financial crisis. And I saw that they were hard pressed to deal with the kind of new competing priorities around. It was tougher to make money. There was a a squeeze on the structural costs, i.e. people, and a lot more attention from the regulators. So really until 2016, we only solved the problem using people, but started to get clients ask us, well, this is all great, but how does everyone else do it? We were curious to know what their peers were doing and were they missing things? You know, the regulators would say to banks, you know, you're not as good as your peer group, but there was a complete asymmetry of information. Uh, regulator sees everybody, you only see yourself. And you stood back from the consulting so that you could focus on the software full time? We thought that we would do both. 
that you could consult and that you could kind of build a product mm. uh, at the same time. And I think that is very tempting. You've got something that generates cash. In our case, you know, it was six, seven, eight years old. A lot of blood, sweat and tears had gone into it. But it's also the thing that holds you back because they're very different businesses. So from a team perspective, different skills, different kind of mindset. Consulting is all about saying yes and figuring out how to do it afterwards. You can fudge it with a relationship. When you're in a product business, you either have it or you don't. You have a roadmap. You can't commit to things that you don't have or don't deliver in the, in the short term. The best advice I got was from a professional friend who said, look, you only have so much time. You can either spend your time focused on the consulting business, which by 2017, 2018, was getting much more competitive. Banks were really slimming down on their consulting spend. And it's a business you have to sell all your revenue from day one of your financial year all over again versus a product business with a recurring revenue stream. And he said to me, so you can either spend all your time on that and killing yourself to at least stand still and stay there. But it seems to me your passion is in building out this kind of next phase. You need to make that leap and put everything into that. And, and that, I sort of remember where I was sat in the office, in the room at that moment in time. And that was when I realized that actually, you know, it was time to make that shift and go forward. And I understand, I'm, I forget the name of the explorer who landed somewhere in the Americas and burnt the ships afterwards. But I sort of understand why they did that, because you need to have a going forwards bit and not looking back. A little bit, you know, we talked earlier about some of the military analogies about things go wrong and you keep looking forwards. And I guess there was that moment of insight that said, really, you need to commit and focus on where you're going, not on where you've been. Yeah, no, I can relate to that. Maybe now's a good time to get into the round a little bit more. You've just raised $12 million from Notion Capital. Yeah. Um, I saw that Stephen Chandler led the round, so yeah. I'm going to have to send him my congratulations. Why now? Why did you decide to raise now? So we'd raised a sort of seed round at the end of 18 and then at the end of 19 from a number of industry grandees and high-profile individuals, which had helped us to develop the product to the next level. Mm -hmm. We had eight banks signed up at the beginning of this year. We, we had product market fit. We had the core team in place and we needed to do a lot more around building the product out and getting ready for, for that kind of go-to-market fit stage to be able to scale. And our hypothesis actually on the round was that it was going to be a consortium of our client banks and others that were going to lead the round. Actually, the round was co-led by Fitch, the ratings agency, Fitch Venture. Mm. And so we thought that it was going to be banks plus Fitch. And then when we went out into the market, it actually coincided with the onset of the pandemic. And so what we saw was the bank started to get distracted because they were reconfiguring themselves and reacting to the pandemic. But actually, very quickly, the VC firms got into, okay, where are the opportunities in the market? So the hypothesis then changed to this is a VC-led round with Fitch co-leading. Got you. So you're getting into the venture capital game. So I'm guessing to raise a Series A in 2020, you've got MRR over 100K per month. You don't have to give me the exact number, but sort of 100 to 300K. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're in that zone. Yeah. How much harder was it to raise the Series A compared to that original seed round? I mean, the seed round was reasonably straightforward in that through broadly my personal network and some of the network of the senior team, 
we knew a bunch of people. So it, it was lots of meetings. People would get it very quickly and kind of make decisions. So, you know, we raised just over 2 million, but with an average investment size of about a hundred thousand pounds. So it was a smaller number of experienced investors with higher ticket sizes mm-hmm. and, and many of whom we knew and knew by, by reputation. And obviously they were EIS investments. And I think the thing that we found straightforward is we were talking to people who were in the industry. We spoke the same language. Mm-hmm. We as a team talked the language of banks. When it came to the VC round, the thing that I realized quite quickly is we didn't speak VC at all. I didn't understand the language. And, you know, and every industry has its quirks. Finance is probably the worst for it. But the military has the whole lingo and language that would be opaque to the outside. And, and so it took me a long time to really get up to speed with the language, what was important, how people thought about that. And I continue to learn now. I mean, it's cringeworthy how, how naive we were in that time. Yeah, because I think it's easy to think that venture capitalists speak like bankers, you know, whether it's your TAM and your unit economics or pre and post money, all of those concepts, they're really quite specific to venture, aren't they? Yeah, they, they really are. And, and you can start to scratch the surface on some of them, but you realize that VCs see so many companies, you know, their own portfolios, they see so many people looking at them. So they've got a, they've got a language and a kind of calibration. And then when you're, when you're new into it, and, and we haven't done all this sort of stuff before, so we were experienced and naive all at the same time. You would look at some of these things from a TAM perspective. We would do calculations in the way people would think about it from a bank perspective. And yet the numbers we would come out with wouldn't look attractive to a VC because they're looking at it from a different way. Right. And once we started to realize how it worked, and then we could reframe what we were doing. Well, can you, can you unpack that? What was the way you did it that would be the banking way? And what was the way that translated with VCs? Yeah, so on, on the TAM, we said, look, how many banks are out there? What are they going to pay us? So we built this bottom-up piece. I'll interrupt just to say TAM is total addressable market. Yeah, exactly. And so, so we, we looked at this bottom-up and then came to what we thought was a big number. And, you know, about a billion and a half. We could get 20% of that market, then actually that's a pretty good outcome. That just didn't get people excited. Um, And so, because you realize people are looking at it in a different way, they're looking much more kind of top down. And in a way that we would have looked at and said, yeah, all you're doing is you're adding a load of numbers up. You're never going to get to any of that penetration. So we looked at it bottom up a little bit too parochially and intellectually. And what we, what we learned is we looked at the, really at the total addressable market. So we looked and said, right, in the risk space, risk in those three buckets that I talked about is a huge market, particularly in, you know, in banking. So we looked at what's being spent in market risk, what's being spent in credit risk. And then we did the same for operational risk. And what we discovered then was that the market was tens of billions across all of these. But you could see the characteristics where market and credit risk was mostly software data and a small amount of professional services. On the operational risk side, the mm. professional services was a huge number, five to 10 billion, and the software and the data was much smaller. And then those VCs would look at that and say, okay, I see what you're doing now. This is a transfer of value. Right. 
And I think that was the bit that unlocked that for us. So my response to that was, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what I've been telling you. It's run by people and we're going to automate it. But we right. just, you know, we hadn't got the language right. We were, we were talking, but it wasn't getting through. Once we learned that dialect, then it unlocked it. Yeah. So just to underline this, you know, when I'm coaching founders who are going through their series A or series B, I actually recommend them do the bottom-up calculation and figure out on a granular level how they actually capture market and capture value. I think the point here is when you're speaking with a VC, they want to understand how things are moving over time. If we can see actually there's a value shift from people in, into data. And so this is a long-term shift so that yeah. all of the money is, is, is switching direction. Yeah. That's yeah. super interesting. So every fundraising round is a journey. What was it like at the bottom of that journey? And what was the turning point? The bottom of the journey was in April, we were in lockdown as a country. I spent all my days talking to my screen, pitching people. And again, because we didn't understand the VC market, not really reading the signals, you know, that the kind of, yeah, that's interesting. I'll come back to you. Taking that as a positive, whereas I now know that's a, we either don't understand it or it's not for us. You know when someone's interested because they won't let you go. And so that shifted for us really in May, I think, because we shifted the way we thought about the TAM mm. and, we led, and we led with a demo of the platform because we were trying to convince people of the problem, how we solved it for something that they didn't experience every day. And, and I talked less in detail and explaining what we did. We let the software do that. Right. Um, and then I think the, the thing that really shifted it was the TAM piece so that you could see that it's a transfer of value. And then things just turned. We found that there was, you know, there was a lot more interest at a lot deeper level. So we then ended up pitching to several partner groups and got our first term sheets. Yeah, nice. So a couple of themes, the show don't tell piece, which is really important when you're dealing with software. It's so hard to describe in words when video or an image can do better, but also that narrative piece around this isn't just about the current market. The world is changing and actually now's the time to act. I like it. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Paul and I are going to be talking about one of his biggest challenges as a leader. You're not going to want to miss this. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. We're joined by Paul Ford, CEO of ASIN. You can find more on ASIN.com. Actually, that's an awesome four-letter domain name. How did you get your hands on it? Well, when we decided to, to rebrand, we just checked it out and it had been taken, but it was available for purchase. And I think it cost us about £8,000. So no. uh, we were no. super fortunate to be able to get it. Yeah. You got a four-letter domain name in, it would have been what, 2018? 2017? 2018. For £8,000? Yeah. yeah. Was this some sort of military mind trick? How no, did you no. No, we just, I, I forget who we bought it through, whether it was Network Solutions or GoDaddy, but someone bought it, we put a bid in for it, and we got it. I think it probably helped that we weren't using ASIN branding anywhere at that stage. There was nothing for someone to look at and say, how badly do these guys want it? It's funny because in our previous business, Anchura, we tried to buy Anchura.com and we bid 15000 for it, and then the price went up to 20000 instantly, and we ended up leaving it. But yeah, £8,000. Wow. Well done. That's very good. Now, I guess you've been working on this business in one form or another for about 10 years. And yeah. I wanted to ask you candidly, what are some of the things you still struggle with as a CEO? From a team perspective, we have 
some really experienced operators who've worked in banks at a senior level. So we really understand the kind of client side really well. But those individuals don't have the experience of building a startup SaaS business. So that's been a really, and continues to be a really interesting challenge for me in the, in the same way I talked about earlier, we had to learn the language of VC. There's a sort of a, a language and a structure and how best to run a SaaS business that isn't in the experience set of a lot of the team, mm. but yet our industry credibility and our ability to engage and get traction with our clients and our prospective clients is embedded in that experience. You know, a, a big part of our brand is that we're not a couple of 25-year-olds in a garage building stuff. People know that we understand the industry and it's balancing this tendency for people to hire those that they're familiar with. And what they're familiar and comfortable with is people that have worked in banks and less familiar with people that have worked in startups who understand the journey of where we are as a, we were 20 people when we closed around, we're now 30 people as we go through that. So it's really balancing that SaaS operating model with the client understanding and the kind of team uh, where mm. the team's learning new skills. What's interesting about the way you framed the problem was you hinted that there was a cultural element to this, but you framed it in terms of language, that there was a, a language of SaaS, there's a language that you speak with your clients. Is that how you think about it? Yeah, I think a lot of startups struggle in some of their client segments, particularly where they're vertically orientated. Yeah. Because they don't speak that language. Well, um, I was going to say, one of the most common things that I find is that people have the language of tech, they have the language of SaaS, but they yeah. can't communicate effectively with the clients. And one way of looking at it is they need to learn a new language. Yeah. And we speak that language with the clients, but we're learning the other language, which is the language of SaaS, the language of tech. I really struggled with getting the team to accept a customer success function initially because they looked at it through the lens of a bank and said, look, if I was sitting in a bank and I turn up and they say I'm from customer success, they'll laugh at me. Yeah. Um, and um, because they thought about it in their old world, naturally, most of the team haven't worked in a bank for about five years because they've been on the journey through it with us. And actually, having gone through that, now having a customer success bit, that is absolutely fine. What do you see as the current challenge that you're facing? So I think that it's really the product charge, and I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, which is if I talk to a C-level executive at a bank and explain what we do and what we charge for it and so on, mm -hmm. they get it very quickly and they understand how it solves one of their bigger challenges. When we go down to those that are doing the work, some of the people who do the work will look at this and think, yeah, but what you're going to do is you're going to highlight all the things I should have been doing, I'm not doing, haven't done. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been telling my boss for the last two years that we had it all sorted. So we've only just come to this kind of realization that we need to solve not only the strategic problem, mm -hmm. but we need to solve and tackle the tactical problem, which is how do we do things for the user who uses this day to day that solves their short-term pain right such that the value to them as individuals outweighs the increased work that solving the strategic problem mm. uh, creates for them 
in the ASIN platform, there are broadly two sets of functionality. There's our benchmarking functionality, which is the bit that shows you what you don't have versus your peer group. So that's the bit that can be risky for an individual user. But actually, the second half of the platform is all the analytics about operational risks and controls, which when you're running things in a spreadsheet, even what is a relatively simple set of functionality is game changing. It's not five, 10 times better. It's 100 times better than Mm -hmm. running it over the spreadsheets. Right. So let me just play back the problem as I've understood it. There are three types of narrative that you can use when you're selling into a business, the strategic narrative, the financial narrative, and the personal narrative. Now, what I'm hearing is the strategic narrative is landing really well, particularly with the seniors. Yeah. And as it comes down, the strategic narrative is still there, but there's maybe a personal narrative that's missing in that, yes, I get the big picture, but this is going to cause problems for me. How can you take away those problems too? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I really like the way you've done those three buckets because actually there's also a financial narrative, which is at the top level, the cost of ASIN is a rounding error in respect to the problem that we're solving. But at the user levels, the individuals there have been told for the last three or four years, cut costs, don't spend any money, don't spend 50p on a big biro. And yet we're asking them to spend what in their terms you know, is a huge amount of money. So I think you're spot on that it is strategic, financial, and personal all at the same time. And and I think we lacked that framework to think about it because we were much too focused on the strategic half of that. When you're speaking with customers, what are the broad themes that you touch on? I'm already hearing that you're talking about the pain of spreadsheets, yeah. about regulation. Do you want to list out some of the key themes that come up in conversation? Yeah, so... The things that come up is that just in the doing the day job, they don't have enough time, don't have enough resource. The, the volume of requests that come in to handle increasing, and particularly during the pandemic as things have changed in people working from home in a kind of a remote environment. There's a push to save money. So is there a better operating model for this? How do we automate these things? We're seeing a big push into centralizations within organizations. So it's been very distributed, but actually organizations are wanting to get a holistic view of their risk. Spreadsheets, time, regulation, information, saving money. But I want to pick on centralization because I think it's interesting and, and challenging. What's the strategic benefit of centralization? So it's about control. Is there one version of the truth that I can see at the organization and consistency across all the various business lines in organizations where they have an investment bank, an asset manager, a wealth manager, a credit card business, for example? Use the word consistency. What's the emotions associated with that? I think at the senior level, it is, I'm on the hook for this. Not only is my job on the line here, but also... Because of the regulatory initiatives like senior manager regime, I'm personally accountable for this. So we can no longer afford to get this wrong. Got you. Nice. Okay. So centralization, what's the financial story? So I think people have been thrown at the problem, smart people to kind of solve it. It then becomes expensive. So you've got, how do I move this to the next level and reduce my operating cost whilst being more effective? And secondly, I've got all this capital that I'm holding, which really frustrates me as an organization because I can't do anything about it. I need to start to think about how can I chip away at that. 
If you look at a bank that's holding 40 billion of tier one capital, that's expensive. So from a financial perspective, you mentioned two things. You can free up people, which is saving costs, but also yeah. freeing up some of that capital. Broad strokes, which is the bigger impact? So the bigger impact is the capital. Right. There's a third piece to it as well, which is cost avoidance. Making sure that you have less fines, less losses, because that also creates reputational issues, which means you need to hire more consultants to answer those questions and demonstrate where you are. Got you. Yes. But as you mentioned, that capital piece is really significant. It's interesting that that wasn't the first thing you said. If you manage the risk correctly, you can free up a lot of capital that was otherwise earmarked for this kind of risk piece. The friction in it is that in order to be able to reduce that capital, the banks need to get regulators on side. To get regulators on side with it, they need to be able to demonstrate that they're structurally in control of their businesses and quantify the way that that risk is managed in a forward-looking way. I don't think we're going to get to a situation where there's no operational risk capital, but I think we can get to a situation where that operational risk capital is much more proportionate to the risk. Interesting. Yeah. All right. What do you see as the personal benefits for the managers of centralization? Operational risk is becoming a career path in a way that market risk, credit risk have been for a long time. So the opportunity for them is to be part of that centralized, more efficient, improving environment, that the direction of travel is one that's going to provide a longer term career path. Mm. Is there a sort of first mover advantage for people moving over to ASIN? From a client perspective? Yeah, on a personal level. Yeah, I think there is. Before we, we raised, we didn't have a brand name, you know, like a big four consulting firm or IBM or Accenture or someone like that. I think the thing that the Series A raise has done for us, and actually it's not, in this case, it's not the Notion brand, it's the Fitch brand. I think the message that Fitch has invested in ASIN is something that's very reinforcing for individuals' personal risk perspective. You know, it requires a kind of a, a hero to take us on and champion it. And what we want is those heroes within organizations. Got you. So what I'm seeing a lot with SaaS sales is this idea of data-driven sales conversations. And so if you can imagine a matrix where on the top columns, you've got strategic, financial, and personal, and then in the rows, you've got your different themes. So use of spreadsheets, time, centralization, saving money. You can start to build up a grid of all these different narratives that might work. And then as you build out the sales team, you can then collect data, which of these narratives are resonating most, and then think about sequencing. What is the right sequencing for the right individual, depending on the part of the business? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think about it, because I think if we use a matrix like that, but apply it to the audiences, it's about what you dial up and what you dial down. And I think you're right. There's a, another dimension, which is there are some banks who are kind of bigger, more sophisticated, they're much more focused on the strategic angles to this. There are other organizations that might be of similar size or are just less sophisticated at this stage who are much more concerned about the tactical. I need to close gaps. I need to make sure there's less issues. So there's almost a kind of three-dimensional piece to it. So I think the matrix, as you described, and then depending on where an organization is in their maturity, might also be another way for us to think about it. Totally. And there's different ways you can structure it. Particularly the consumer companies will focus on emotions as well. 
which emotion will resonate most in that particular narrative. What's becoming clearer the more you speak about this? I think it's about what language and dialect do we speak to whom, when, whether that's how we're pitching to people who are users of the product, to the seniors of the product, to VCs. And there isn't one overall language. We need to be multilingual without somehow losing the authenticity so that we don't speak with two tongues. I don't think it's limited to just the VC tech, but I think that was much more obvious because of the fact that we just didn't speak it at all. It's like being somewhere that doesn't speak any English. We needed to learn that. I think at the client, we know enough to get by. I think it's less actually a language. I think it's more about the dialect of it. Yeah. You know, my wife is Brazilian. She's fascinated with the way British people express themselves. And I think there's some viral meme that's going around where it has a translation between what English people say and what they mean. So yeah. a good example yeah. is quite good means awesome. Yeah. Fairly good means awful. I wonder whether there's an onboarding process where you have the banking way to say something and the tech way to say something, just to acknowledge that there is different languages at play. I think it's really interesting. And I think it feels to me there's quite a lot of work that we need to do to unpack that. About two weeks ago, we had a workshop with a guy that I'd, I'd actually met. I'd been to one of his business development breakfasts in February. And, and he, he markets what he does as brand strategy. But actually, his session was all about alignment a vision of what we do, why we do it with clients. And it was brilliant because it created a common language around what we do. And it wasn't a new language in the same way we're referring to a kind of VC tech or a new dialect with clients. It was just, we're all looking at the same thing, but we think about it in different ways and we describe it in different ways. And I think we've got some unpacking of this language piece, both on the VC tech piece, which some need, but it'd be good for the whole firm to do that. And then similarly on the dialect with clients. Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought up that story because when you think about how do you learn a language? Well, the answer is you have to go to a language school. You can pick it up slowly in the same way a child will pick up from their parents, but that takes a few years, right? Yeah. And yeah. my first business, like 12 years ago, we had some real problems in tech. None of us were really trained in agile. We were basically doing waterfall development. And I hired an agile trainer to come in and speak to the whole tech team. I was actually, like most founders, pretty tight-fisted. I said, if we're going to get a trainer in the whole company, there was about 30 of us at the time, we're going to take this agile training. And it was one of the most transformative things I did. And it's not just about the process and the skills that were trained. It was about the language, certain ways of defining things, certain terms that then became part of the fabric of the company. The link between language and training is really strong. Okay, we're going to take one more quick break. When we come back, Paul is going to tell us exactly what he's going to do next in order to tackle this language problem. So stay tuned. Okay, we're back. So Paul, we've talked a little bit about the difference between internal and external language, senior and junior language. What is your next step? So... The thing that I've got from this is firstly that realization that there's something here that we need to address. I know what the kind of root of the problem is now. What I'm going to do next is I'm going to talk to the leadership team about that and highlight those various challenges that we're seeing and draw it back to this is a kind of a language challenge. We've actually been doing some work recently on 
personality type. So the Jungian mm. analytics, the red, yellow, green, blue. So actually, it plays quite nicely to some of the work we've done there around how people perceive each other, how they need to communicate better, and then figure out how we start to do this structurally with some help. Got you. Conversation with the leadership team where you're discussing topic of language and you're still in the framing phase, right? Getting information from the team and more input on exactly how to define the problem. And I'm going to flip that on to the listeners. Maybe this is a conversation that you want to have with your leadership team to try and figure out how different languages are playing out and some of the issues that causes. Well, Paul, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and being open and vulnerable about these challenges. I really appreciate it. How was the experience for you? I would just like to say thank you to you, Dave. I've learned something from this that I didn't expect to, and I think I've got a framework to take that forward. So thank you very much for having me and for your time in doing this. Oh, shucks. Well, if any of you listeners are interested in joining a rocket ship that has a powerhouse CEO at the helm, and you happen to be a data engineer, maybe you work in customer success or you're a product manager, go ahead and visit asyn.com. You can learn more. And I'm also going to link to them on the show notes, which you'll find at davebailey.com forward slash podcast. So thank you all for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit subscribe in Apple or follow on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. And then join us next time where we're going to be speaking with another high growth startup founder. And until then, stay healthy. Catch you soon.